Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. I'll read, and then we'll pray. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Will you bow with me? Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us this morning. Our one desire is to glorify Jesus, to see him as he is, and to be seen by him as we are. Jesus, it was said of you that you went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. We just pray that you do what you do in and among us today. Spirit of God, minister to the hearts of the saints. Minister to the hearts of people here today, people listening or watching online. You know everything that we need and all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Use the limitations of our time, the limitations of my vocabulary, of our understanding. And do something supernatural with the very natural, very ordinary act of speaking and listening. We honor your word. We honor your presence here today. In Jesus' name, amen. My earliest memory of church was a very good one. I'm a third-generation pastor, and so I grew up in a pastor's home. And my dad was a pastor in a once-thriving denomination. My earliest memory of church was standing on an uncomfortable wooden pew in a one-room church with stained glass windows that seemed to sway in the breeze. I remember singing an old hymn called Victory in Jesus at the top of my lungs. That's my earliest memory of church. It was a joyful memory. I remember growing up in this once thriving denomination built on the foundation of revival throughout the South. And I remember going into high school and participating, getting to experience revival in my teenage years, seeing my friends come to Jesus in that little bitty Georgia town. My dad is 78 years old, and he is still a full-time pastor in that particular denomination. 
But over the years, that denomination has dwindled. People have left that denomination in droves. They have since split. The church my dad was a pastor of decided to leave the denomination because it no longer believed in Scripture as authoritative. What do you think when you look at the state of the church, the capital C church? Are you encouraged or are you discouraged? Are you frustrated or are you inspired? Perhaps a little bit of both. Over our few minutes together, I want to take a look at the first initiation, the the launch of the church. What did Jesus say about the church? And what can we learn from the pages of Scripture? Scripture, which is our anchor, which is our life. In our time together, we just have two very simple ideas. And the first one is this. Jesus builds his church. Jesus builds his church. And the second idea is also just as simple, and that is this. We have a part to play. Jesus builds his church, and we have a part to play. Matthew 16, verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, Caesarea Philippi is not to be confused with Caesarea, which was a town on the Mediterranean coast. Caesarea Philippi was a little bit further north, and it was on the base of a very famous, at least scripturally famous, mountain called Mount Horeb. This was where the Jordan River flowed. And in the year 332 B.C., Alexander was sweeping the world, conquering place to place. And when he came to this particular region, he thought this would be a great place to set up the worship of the god Pan. Now, Pan was a Greek god. Uh, if, you've, if you know anything about Greek mythology, it's the, the Greek god that was half goat, half human, the god of, uh, of agriculture, the god of fertility and prosperity. There was a 45-foot cave there from which uh, the waters once flowed out into the Jordan. Several years later, after Alexander, came a king in Israel named Herod. Herod was not a good king. He was not a good man. It was once said of Herod that you would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. He was ruthless. But Herod set up worship of Caesar in this region. No longer just the Greek gods, but now the Roman gods too. And Philip, his son, came along and and extended that worship. And there are all these places where you could come worship the gods of the region. It's probably not unlike Las Vegas. They probably enticed people to come from far and wide to find a little bit of pleasure to placate the gods. Seemingly harmless fun, but these were not gods of love. These were real spiritual beings that were being worshipped 
by people of this region. The worship of these gods was usually met with gross prostitution of all kinds, substance abuse of all kinds, gluttony and debauchery. It was a beautiful place on the outside, but it was a place of manipulation, domination, and exploitation in reality. This was a place of darkness. Now, one of the most famous Christmas verses, which you most likely read over the last few weeks, is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. It says, Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has shone light. On them light has shone. I want you to think about what it would have been like to follow Jesus, to be one of his disciples, to have been chosen, to have heard the words, follow me. To have been so compelled by the power and love and majesty of this young rabbi that you would have dropped your vocational nets, left family and friends, given up everything to go be covered in the dust of this rabbi. And to to have been taught by this rabbi. Your goal was to be with your rabbi, to become like your rabbi, and eventually for your rabbi to look at you and say, go make disciples. To become like, to do the things your rabbi did. And so these disciples followed Jesus and indeed had been covered in the dust of their rabbi. But their rabbi was not like any other rabbi. Their rabbi actually healed the sick. Their rabbi taught scripture with authority. Their rabbi did not coerce or manipulate. Their rabbi was a rabbi of love. They were so compelled by this rabbi that they were eager to hear anything he had to say. Here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept. And they found themselves being shaped into the image of their rabbi little by little. Just before they came to this place, Caesarea Philippi, they had seen Jesus feed the 5,000, what we call the 5,000, very likely 20,000 people with just loaves and fish, just, just a, a, a small meal. They had seen Jesus heal the blind. They had seen Jesus uh, confound the religious rulers. And they must have been wondering, why are we going to Caesarea Philippi? Why are we going to the very gates of hell with our rabbi? What's going to happen here? We don't want to be, uh, we don't want to become unclean by being so close in proximity to this idol worship. But Jesus seemed to be utterly unafraid. In fact, Jesus seemed to be eager to teach them something very specific once he got to Caesarea Philippi. Jesus stands in this place of great darkness and says this phrase, I will build my church. Right in the heart of gross idolatry. Right in the heart of uh, of gross expressions of pleasure and self-seeking and sin, Jesus stands and says, I will build my church. Now, the word church, many of you might know this, but in case you don't, 
is this word right here. It's a Greek word, ekklesia. And it's, it has a very simple, actually probably a non-spiritual meaning before uh, this point. It simply means a gathering of people with a shared belief. Jesus is, is taking his disciples to in, to in, in front of a gathering, in front of lots of gatherings. There are all these little gatherings of people that are there to worship other gods. And Jesus takes his band of brothers, this, this, this small band of disciples, and says, you see these gatherings. Don't be discouraged when you see this. Don't be distracted by these gatherings. Don't be too deeply concerned by their way of life. When you see cultural, political, economic, spiritual ecclesia that preys upon people's fears or plays upon their disordered desires, Jesus says, don't lose heart. I am still building my ecclesia. I'm still building my church. In fact, that's a good way to know, to discern whether or not an, ide- uh, uh, an ideal or a way of life is of Jesus or not. If, if the idea seems to be playing on people's fears or preying upon people's fears or playing upon their distorted loves, maybe it's the right loves but in the wrong order, this is not the way of Jesus. And Jesus squares right up to deep darkness and says, this is not the way. By the way, do you know why people went to Caesarea Philippi? The same reason anybody pursue any desire. The same reason people coddle any fear. It's because sometimes it almost works. Idolatry almost works. Sin almost works. The hardest habits to give up on, they say, are the ones that almost work. But here is Jesus, victorious King Jesus, who doesn't come as a military leader, but stands in the face of military conquest and says, I'm building a different kind of ecclesia, a different kind of gathering, with a different kind of of power. In Acts chapter 10, verse 38, we see the way of Jesus contrasted with the way of the world. The same Peter uh, to whom Jesus is ha- with whom Jesus is having a conversation in Matthew 16 says this in Acts 10, 38. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. So Jesus certainly operated in a kind of power, but it was so different than the power of the world. In the next part of Acts 10.38, we see the kind of power Jesus used. It says this, Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil because God was with him. You see, Jesus does not manipulate. He does not coerce. He does not dominate and exploit. He is not like the other gods. Hear me now. God's acts of war from the very beginning are always acts of goodness. God's acts of war against your spiritual enemies are always acts of beauty and order. 
He steps into the chaos and he creates order and he fills, he forms and he fills. Here Jesus is standing in the midst of awful chaos. You see, when these people came to worship the gods of Pan and Caesar, their lives would be would end up in ruin. These idol gods did what all idol gods do. They promised everything on the front end, but they ended up taking everything and giving nothing in the end. Jesus simply says, follow me. The gods of Caesarea Philippi did indeed bring chaos to the bodies, to the resources, to the time and talents, to the habits, to the mental and emotional health issues, to the relational issues, the financial issues of the people who bowed the knee. But Jesus offers life and life abundantly. Our good King Jesus goes about doing good and healing all who are oppressed to the devil because God is with him. The way of Jesus always brings order and healing and grace. And so here in the heart of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus said he's going to build his church. You know, doing research for this specific message, I came upon a message taught by your founding pastor circa 2004 from this very location. Anybody happen to be here in that, at that time? Preaching from Caesarea Philippi. I want you to think about this, Reality Carp. From the same location that Jesus said he would build his church, within the very first year of the existence of this church, you stood at the gates of hell and proclaimed the name of Jesus. And look at what God has done in and through this local church. Look at all the fruit that was born in this local church. And guess what? Can I tell you something? That's not the good old days. We may pine for those kinds of days. It's appropriate to thank God if you got to be a part of something like that, whether here in another church. It's fully appropriate to look back and say, God, thank you that I got to be a part. I, got, I had a part to play in revival. I had a part to play in churches being launched. I had a, a part to play in relationships being restored and people young and old coming to Jesus. I have had a part to play in that. And Lord, I thank you for that. And then, here's what you do. You pause and don't let your heart be troubled. Because the same Jesus that stood at Caesarea Philippi is still building his church today. The good old days are not what once was. Even then, if you're living in the good old days, you might not have realized it was the good old days. Guess what the good old days will be? The good old days are the days of the future when our good King Jesus comes back to earth. New heaven, new earth, King Jesus ruling and reigning, setting the world to rights where every sad thing comes untrue. That is the hope of the future. That's why every time we gather, every time you gather, when you look into the eyes of someone here who's happy to see you, they're remembering that Jesus is coming again. Jesus said he will build his church. So 
reality, Carpinteria. I hope you're encouraged by that fact. Jesus said he would build his church. Be of good cheer. When I was in college, uh, my friends and I had a, a habit, and I'm not going to say it's a good habit. It was a very bad habit. We watched a show called The Simpsons every day. I loved that show so much. Don't judge me, okay? And there's a particular uh, episode, a Halloween episode, uh, where they were riffing on a movie called The Shining. Again, past life, don't judge me. In this particular movie, or in this particular episode, Homer is playing the part of what was Jack Nicholson's uh, uh, character in the movie Shining. He's going crazy. He's going mad. Um, and he's tr- he decides he's, he needs to kill his whole family. So Marge Simpson, Homer's wife, is running for her life through this, this ancient hotel, and she finally finds a CB radio, and she finally tunes in to connect with the chief, Chief Wiggum. Now, Chief Wiggum was a bumbling sheriff. He had his feet propped up. He was eating a donut, having no idea what was on the other line, on the other side of the line. Marge gets a hold of him. Chief Wiggum, Homer's trying to kill me. Over. And Chief Wiggum says, oh, well, I'm glad that's over. When you hear the news that Jesus is building his church, you should be comforted. But you should also be motivated. How is Jesus building his church? Why go through all the trouble, Jesus, to bring your disciples along? Why not just do it? Why go through all the trouble to show your disciples? Why go go through all the trouble to, to ask these young boys to interact with you on this theological question? Who do you say that I am? Why do this if they're, if not to invite them and us to participate? Jesus is building his church. Yes, we should be encouraged, but we should also be motivated because we have a part to play. You should ask yourself the question, on what did Jesus say he would build his church? Well, Jesus simply said, on this rock, I will build my church. What's the rock on which Jesus built his church? Well, remember, our first instinct when we're asking questions of Scripture should be this. Look to Scripture to interpret Scripture. I don't know if you know this. Scripture often and most often interprets Scripture, even sometimes within the same passage. What did we observe before? Well, in contrast to what the world is saying about Jesus or what other people are saying about Jesus, Jesus is is acutely interested in what you have to say about Jesus. Not because of your authority, but because of your testimony. Not because of your wisdom, because you have to name your own self, but because Jesus has already named you. He's a good shepherd. He knows you by name. He wants you to acknowledge what he's done in you. He wants you to acknowledge his lordship. What about you, Jesus? Uh, what about you? Who do you say I am? Matthew 16, 15. Then in verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Then Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. 
Jesus invited a confession or a profession of faith. You know, when God comes to you, when he speaks to you, no matter how far you are from him, he always comes with questions. He doesn't come with condemnation. Even Adam and Eve, when they sinned against God, did God come and say, how dare you? You've blown it. That's how we feel. We know that's how they felt because they hid from one another and from God. But what did God do? God beckoned them to come out. Hey, where are you? Where are you? When you come before God and you're honest about where you are, He brings you close. He brings you into relationship. He covers your sin. Where sin abounds, His grace much more abounds. His grace is far greater than your sin. Peter, sinful Peter, makes this astounding proclamation of the Lordship of Jesus. Peter becomes a witness. Acts chapter 1, Jesus talks about how they will receive this same power. In Acts chapter 1, the disciples are saying, okay, Jesus, you're going to bring your kingdom, right? You've talked about this at Caesarea Philippi. You're building your gathering. I remember that. Now that you're resurrected, is that the time you're going to do it? You're going to redeem Israel? Is that right? And Jesus says, well, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons, but guess what? Hey, you will receive power. The power that you saw me walk in, to some degree, you will receive that power. But what kind of power? You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and the end of the world, ends of the earth. So God invites us to participate in a very specific way, bearing witness to his lordship, bearing witness to who he is. Ephesians chapter 2 Verse 10 has this interesting contrast. You know, by grace you're saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's what the previous verses just said. But then look what Ephesians 2.10 says. We are his workmanship. We are his work. He's building, and we are his workmanship. Who is he building? Well, he's building us. We are the church. And through us, He is reaching the world, created in Christ Jesus for good works. You notice the contrast here? Wait a minute. Are we working or are we the ones who are being worked on? Are we workmanship? Are we God's masterpiece or are we participating in creating this masterpiece? The answer is yes. Jesus, in in, in his brilliance, calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light, and then allows us to participate as witnesses. And then he creates in us a kind of masterpiece. As we set aside the things that were behind, and we press on to the high mark of God, God invites us to help us, uh, invites us to help build the church, and somehow builds us along the way. You will receive power, Jesus said, to be my witnesses. Another Greek word. The word witness is the word martis, from which we get the word martyr. 
You see, to be a witness is to set aside your own name, your own sense of glory, to allow yourself to be named, to die to yourself. If you want the resurrection life of Jesus, it requires going through the cross. To be a witness is a kind of martyrdom. A a witness is one who simply affirms or attests. Jesus does all the heavy lifting. My family is here with me, and right here um, on the front row is my son, Bronson. Bronson, wave your hand. Wave it real high. He's seven years old. Um, Bronson is an amazing kid. Uh, He loves to obey his mom and dad some of the time. The other day, I was hanging out in Bronson's room with him, and he took all of his clothes, and he said, watch this, Dad. And And he sets him down in the hallway. I said, well, what are you doing, buddy? He said, guess what, Dad? Before too long, all these clothes are going to be cleaned and folded and put back in my drawer for me. The magic people are going to come along somehow and take your clothes and wash them. And actually, he's not wrong. That's kind of how it works. Jesus invites us to participate in the church. And it's not unlike the partnership between Bronson and the rest of the family. You do your part. You do the natural. Let God do the supernatural. You do the natural of of showing up before God and allowing him to reveal himself to you again and again and again. Daily bread in his word. Daily presence uh, in prayer and worship. And the more you allow yourself to be shaped by God's presence, the more you'll become like him. He does all the heavy lifting. He will build his church, but he invites you to be a witness, to bear witness to the goodness of God. Tim Keller tells the story of this woman who came to his church and stood on the back the whole time, and and he met her after service, and and she said, I'm not comfortable with church. I've never been to church before. And he said, well, why did you come? Tim Keller's church was in the heart of Manhattan at the time. And she said, well, I work in the television industry, and I made a royal mistake, a career-ending mistake. It cost, cost uh, my particular uh, company a lot of money. I should be fired. I came in ready to turn in my resignation papers, and my boss called me in and said, you're okay. I didn't know what to do. I I said, what do you mean I'm okay? I'm fired, right? My boss said, no. I come to find out my boss took the heat for me. My boss stepped in and used his good name to cover me and to protect me. I've never heard of this. This is unheard of in the television industry. And I said, why did you do this? And he said, shut that door. I'll tell you one time. I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus covered my sin. He paid a debt I could not pay. How could I not look for ways to forgive and to cover debts to other people? And she said, where do you go to church? This is what it means to be a witness, to simply reflect on God's goodness in you and through you. But it needs to be a fresh witness. This church was built on a number of amazing principles, one of which you've heard many times is this. All ministry flows out of intimacy. 
If you want to have better impact for the kingdom of God in 2024, get in the presence of God daily. Pour yourself into God's word. Memorize God's word. Uh, uh, Meditate on God's word. Spend time in the presence. Don't, Don't underestimate the power of your presence in this place on Sunday mornings or in home groups or in serving. Don't underestimate the power of you simply showing up. Jesus said he'll build his church, but what is our job? Well, simply this, we testify as witnesses. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Sometimes that's through your words, but most of the time it's through the way that you live. And what happens when we do? Well, Jesus responds, blessed are you, Reality Carpinteria, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And on this rock, you keep being faithful to Jesus. On this rock, he will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. As we prepare to close in worship and to respond to this teaching, I stand here today because of the witness of a teenage girl that I'll never know. Just after the Depression, my maternal grandfather was a stuttering, stammering, exceedingly poor young man. He wasn't a bad guy. He wasn't a good guy either. His family was broken. And a young teenage girl walked across the room to Ross and said, hey, will you be a part of our club? He said, what's the club? It's the Pocket Bible Club. Will you take this little Bible, this Pocket New Testament, just put it in your pocket, and when you think about it, read it someday. My grandfather had a rolling store going from farmer to farmer, selling goods, swapping, bartering. One hot summer day, he pulled off to the side and sat under a tree to get some shade. And in his overalls was this Bible. He was a prolific reader, and he had a habit of reading the last chapter of every book to know whether or not he wanted to read the rest of the book. So, Ross Freeman, my maternal grandfather, read the book of Revelation. And he was so deeply convicted, so trembling in fear before God, the good kind of fear of God. He remembered there's a, there's a preacher who lives just down the road. He hopped in his rolling store and went to the preacher's house and knocked on the door and said, tell me what this means. The preacher led him to Jesus and said, hey, tonight there's, there's a revival preacher coming. Will you come? My stuttering, stammering grandfather sat at the very back of that old church. And the revivalist met him before and said, young man, will you come and share your testimony? My grandfather 
stood in front of this small group of people and just simply shared what was on his heart. And guess what? He didn't stutter. From that moment on, and for 50 years, my grandfather became a preacher, a statesman in the church. My dad, his son-in-law, came from a terrible family. His dad had been in prison for 35 years. When he met my grandfather, his family had been terribly abusive, addicted, all the the brokenness you can imagine. When my grandfather shared the gospel with him, my dad began to follow Jesus, changing the trajectory of generations simply from one little girl being bold enough to say, hey, can I tell you what Jesus did for me? Do not underestimate the power of your testimony in this church, in your family, in your community, simply saying, can I just tell you how good Jesus has been to me? Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. One final verse. Forgive me, Jan, I did not give this verse for our slides. Revelation, the book that my grandfather read. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Messiah Christ have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been thrown down. And they conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. For they did not love their lives to the point of death. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the power of your word. Thank you that you were faithful. Thank you that you have been faithful. Thank you that you were faithful to Reality Carp in 2023. You're going to continue to be faithful in 2024. And we simply offer all that we are to you, humble and broken as it is. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to build the church on our strength. We don't have to build the church on our eloquence, on our intellect. We don't have to build the church through our marketing, through our sales, through our uh, persuasion. Jesus, you are building the church, and you're inviting us to participate, and everybody gets to play. Thank you for all that you're going to do. We just invite you, even in this moment, Lord, comfort those who need comforted and challenge those of us who need to be challenged. Show us a very clear step to take in this new year. For all the fruit that's born, as you build this church, we'll be careful to give you the glory and the honor and the praise for it. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.